Welcome and thanks for listening to Texas Tech Health Check from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center. I'm your host, Melissa Whitfield. We want you to get healthy and stay healthy with help from evidence-based advice from our physicians, healthcare providers, and researchers. It's been a little over two years since the COVID-19 pandemic was declared, and even though the hospitalization numbers for those with COVID have decreased and masking policies are being dropped, to mark the occasion, we have two guests, two pulmonologists, Dr. Victor Test and Dr. Eptisam Islam, who describe those early days and what the first surge was like, how they persevered, and the lasting effects of COVID-19 on patients and themselves. I'd also like to mention that for his work, Dr. Test was recognized by the American Medical Association with the Medal of Valor for his work on behalf of patients and the community during the pandemic. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Islam and Dr. Tess. Dr. Islam, you've been here before. Welcome yes, back. Thank you for having me. And Dr. Test, welcome to the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your expertise, and what you do at the Health Sciences Center? Well, sure. And thank you for having me. I am the Chief of Pulmonary Medicine and Critical Care here at the Health Science Center and the Director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at University Medical Center. My primary expertise is complex pulmonary disease, including pulmonary vascular disorders. But of course, the last few years, we've spent most of our time working diligently in the medical intensive care unit, uh, dealing with advanced respiratory failure. Dr. Islam? Yes, thank you for having me again. I always love being here. So I'm Eptisamataya Islam. I am an MD, PhD. I am an associate tenured professor and associate dean of clinical medicine. I work with Dr. Test in our pulmonary critical care division. I don't have a specific expertise. I kind of do a little bit of everything, which is what I enjoy as far as taking care of the patients. Well, again, thank you for coming back and thank you for being here. Let's go back to years when the pandemic was declared. How did you prepare for COVID-19 and what did you expect? We'll start with Dr. Test. I don't think anyone really could have prepared completely, at least from the emotional standpoint. I was a little fortunate that uh, through some connections with one of the societies I'm involved with, that I'd had a little bit of warning that things might be a lot rougher than we had anticipated with previous flu epidemics. And so uh, beginning early on, myself and Dr. Islam started to develop protocols on how we were going to protect our people that worked in the intensive care unit. We started to procure PPE because early on, you recall, in New York and Seattle, there were significant shortages. So even before we had our first patient here, you know, we started to plan and develop protocols on how we were going to take care of these folks. And not only that... and Dr. Islam went to great lengths to scour the city to get donations of personal protective equipment. I personally bought personal protective equipment. We started conserving very early, even before we had our first patient, as we tried to prepare for the onslaught of what was about to happen. The early reports were, you know, sort of horrifying. And so we had extra incentive to move forward aggressively to try to protect our people and our our patients. Dr. Islam? Yes. So I think... Initially, preparing for COVID-19 is kind of more of a mental grasp first as far as, you know, what is this? What are we going to do? You know, and I think for myself, I don't like to be in fear. And for me, action 
overcomes that fear. And so being able to do something when I felt like you couldn't really do anything was what worked for me. And so part of that was, you know, gathering PPE. We were part of a West Texas 3D consortium where we worked with the Texas Tech engineers and honors college in a very large group where we were brainstorming ideas. And if we had to connect to ventilators and face masks and you know, plastic boxes. And so we were both a part of that. And for me, that really mentally took away the fear and really helped push me forward in the sense of, you know, okay, now we have an action plan, you know, and how to move forward. I think also like Dr. Tess is saying, you didn't know what to expect. You were just seeing, I kept watching that John Hopkins, you know, map where the red dots kept growing and growing and growing. And you're like, well, Lubbock's isolated enough. Maybe it just won't make it here. So I think we weren't necessarily sure what to expect. But you just knew that you were going to have to be there and kind of they're very sick patients and, you know, just go from there. Well, eventually COVID-19 did hit Lubbock. So what was it like treating that first patient? For me, I, I mean, honestly, it was very scary because we didn't know what to expect. And then the shortage of PPE and then we were reusing masks, you know, I would, you know, using the same mask every day for a, a known COVID patient. And I'm touching the mask and I'm like, is this really not going to, you know, infect me, you know? And so there was definitely fear. But I think, again, you know, it's like, OK, this is what my job is. This is what we're supposed to do as physicians is take care of other people. Definitely protecting myself and my, you know, staff and team members. That was definitely a big part of it. But it was scary at first. Now it's kind of like, it's just another thing that we treat now in our ICU. But I think those first initial weeks and months were actually very fearful. Yeah, no, I would agree. You know, I, I think I was the ICU attending actually when the fir very first COVID patient was admitted, which was March the 8th. How rough the last two years have been is probably testified by the fact that I actually remember that. Uh, that patient actually did very well. But of course, you know, we were venturing into the unknown. And to me, that was the biggest fear. I mean, sure, I was scared too. Uh, nobody can go into that without being, having a realistic fear that, man, I could get this and it could, you know, take my life. I, I knew two doctors in New York who died. I mean, it was, that was a significant fear. But I felt like I'd done everything I could to prepare for that. And I was doing everything I could to protect my staff and ICU staff. And so then it was how do we best manage this problem and focusing on that. And that has evolved considerably. And I agree, we've become so used to having severe COVID illness in our ICU that, you know, it is something we do regularly now. So it, it is not uh, a habit. I mean, it certainly changes continuously, but the the immediate fear of, oh, I'm, I'm going to get this for sure, and we don't know what's going to happen, I think has gone away. And that is that is good for us. Unfortunately, the patients and the families in the intensive care have a lot of that fear, and that has not gone away. If anything, it's gotten worse over time, I think. And trying to minister to them and help them uh, has been is, is just continued to be a, a continual struggle. So tell me, what was it like during the first surge? Well, you know, the, the first surge was particularly difficult in the sense that we really didn't have a, a treatment that we felt like we could use. Most viral illnesses, the treatment is supportive care. And when you have such severely ill patients who are so, I mean, in just every form of problem you can imagine in an intensive care unit from kidney failure to low blood pressure to 
you know, just horrible injury to the lung, to confusion, and you don't have a treatment, you're just trying to hang on until things get better, that's, that, that is very difficult. And that was where we were in the first six to eight, 12 weeks of management of these folks. And of course, during that time, there were lots of people espousing potential therapies, which, you know, because people were afraid. And I think that was the hardest thing and about the first surge. We were also unsure then, are we going to run out of equipment? Are we going to run out of masks? Or how are, we going to, how are we going to make do? How do we reuse all this equipment and make it safe for the patient and for us? You know, And, of course, before we were all vaccinated, there was even a greater fear of getting sick ourselves. And I think that was the, those were the hardest things. But to me, the hardest thing about the first part of the surgery was not knowing, A, what to expect, and not having anything I could do to make the outcome different other than good supportive care. Yeah, I think for the first part of the surge was, you know, when it when COVID did come to Lubbock was really understanding how complicated these patients were. I don't think we knew that just kind of seeing the other places that were coming on TV, but understanding how sick they were and just kind of how quickly they changed. And so, you know, you had to adapt very quickly. You're doing rounds and someone's not doing well, you have to run over there and then someone else. And literally you can spend three, four, five hours easy in one patient's room. And so I think that was part of kind of adapting to understanding, you know, how COVID is, you know. And I think the other thing is based on age or, you know, somebody's health, you can usually say, hey, they're going to do really well, they're going to do really poorly. And there was no discrimination with COVID. And that was very hard for myself and for families to understand that they're so young, you know, it's like COVID doesn't discriminate, you know? And so I think kind of understanding more of the disease process and what it's doing. And as Dr. Tess was saying, you know, renal failure, confusion, clots, you know, and just a whole slew of everything you can have in the ICU in one patient. So you mentioned being called back to a patient with COVID when you're seeing another patient, please describe everything that you had to go through to go into that room. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, uh, most of the time we would do rounds kind of outside the rooms because at the time we were not letting our interns and students go into the rooms as far as conserving PPE and just kind of to protect them because we didn't know what the consequences were. And so at the time, if when you start making rounds into the patient's rooms, so I would have a full kind of like a painter suit that had hoodies and these I had actually bought from Walmart and Dr. Tess provided some. So we were all kind of scrambling to get stuff. I had a hairnet or a surgical cap. I had goggles. I had my N95. I had two pairs of gloves that went on and I was in scrubs every day. And so these were the things that got put on and I made it mandatory for my team there. They must put these things on before they go into the room. And so it's already hot in the rooms and then you have um, kind of the, the negative pressure. And so that makes it super hot. And so you're sweating. It's very hot in the room. And then you're trying to care for these patients or do procedures for these patients. You know, if your goggles fogged up, you'd have to come out, clean them, you know, change your gloves, you know. And so it's kind of a process very early on because we didn't know who was positive and the tests were taking so long. We would have to change in between every patient. And so seeing a few patients would take hours because you're coming out desterilizing, putting on new gear for the new the next patient because we were afraid of cross-contamination. So how were you able to find the strength and courage to continue as physicians and educators after having to go through all of that? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think it was ever a question in my mind that I would not take care of COVID. I just had to, it was more of kind of like what I would do at home. So I sent my husband to a different room to sleep in. I wore my duckbill mask, but in my mind, I signed up for critical care and I'm always a person of my actions, whatever consequences are of those actions, I follow through with them. And so I signed up to do pulmonary critical care. Nobody made me do it. Did I think I was going to face a pandemic? No, but that was part of it. And so I just knew that I had to go into work and we are very limited faculty here too. And so abandoning ship was not even a question in my mind. And it's the right thing to do. It always comes down to, is this the right thing to do? And this is the right thing to do. And I just made sure that I protected myself and protected the people I worked with. And you just have to do what's right. And helping someone else in need is usually always the right thing to do. So, Well, I mean, I, I agree. I, I, I never had any thoughts about, is this the, the, what I need to do? And it never would have occurred to me to not do my fullest, you know, you know, did I have doubts, you know, about, oh man, what, you know, why didn't I choose a different field? (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, I think we'd have to be, you know, Derm was looking really good. (laughs) We'd have to, we would have to really be, uh, insensitive to the, the, the struggle to not sometimes have doubts. But what I, you know, I think, one of the things that, you know, you have to hang on when you're in the ICU is you hang on for the good outcomes because you're going to have some bad outcomes. Patients are going to die. And that's not always who you think it's going to be. And so every time we had a win, one of our patients got better. We were able to reunite them with their families. That sort of gave me the strength to continue on. And I think the other thing is for me was trying to make sure I set a good example for the people that we're trying to train because there's no no guarantee that we won't have another pandemic in five years or 10 years or 20 years and they'll have to be prepared and the the memories of this will undoubtedly linger with them for a long time. But I, I felt the burden of trying to set an example and I think if anything, I probably did a better job of that than I do under normal circumstances, uh, just looking back at it. So has this uh, experience changed the way you teach or the way you treat patients? Uh, You know, I think we we certainly in the early parts of the, the experience had to adapt our teaching to a different way because we were not able to go into the room with the team and teach the way we normally would. But I think Realistically, as we've moved back towards, you know, having a lot of experience with this, my, my teaching has been very much the same. I think treating patients has changed some. One of the biggest things when we first started is because we had such limited protective equipment and we were trying to protect, you know, very frankly, everybody in, in the Lubbock County, is we didn't have visitation for patients. And so we... I've always took it upon myself to try to call patients' families when they couldn't come, but now every patient required and needed and deserved a call. And so when I think one of the most important things it did for me was emphasize how important having the family in the room with the patient was for the patient, but also for us so that we could 
tr- we could b- help them understand better what's going on because you can try all day long to describe to someone over the phone what's happening with their loved one in an intensive care unit and you just can't do it so to me the importance of family in our care was really amplified yeah i mean i i agree with that 100 percent. we were doing a lot of facetiming and so you're yelling through all your mask and gear and you know you're trying to show the family the patient but as dr test is saying you know you try to show them the equipment and what's going on and it's just not the same as being in the room with those families but i think as far as you know how i you know educate or treat patients my motto has always been every patient in that room is my family and and i tell the team you treat these people as if you're family and how you would want to be treated um did it take a little bit more time a little more tears probably because it's hard when you're in the room and you're crying with that patient and they're crying on the, you know, FaceTime, you get affected. And so I know there's always kind of this stigma of like, Oh, you're not, you shouldn't cry. But I'm like, I'm human. And if I want to cry with the patient, I'm going to cry with the patient and that's okay. And I try to portray that to the team. And, you know, I think not just for myself, but what COVID did for physicians and for staff is it started more open conversations about burnout and PTSD. And I think that's a very important topic because we as physicians will be dying before we'd say we're not coming to work, you know, and, and if you had COVID, it's like, don't come to work, you know? And so it changed the whole kind of conversation of, you know, this wellness and healthcare and this mental health um, that we don't usually talk about. So I think from that stemmed good conversations, but as far as, you know, what I do on a daily basis, I just try to do the same thing I do every day. So Now, we read about the number of people, almost a million people who died from COVID-19, but obviously there are a lot of people who recovered. Regarding lung health or any other respiratory illnesses, what can they do to stay as healthy as possible? Well, I think we saw with, you know, people wearing masks and washing their hands, we saw a decrease in flu that we see very large numbers of every year, you know, the very controversial topic of getting vaccinated, you know, and I never push anything on anybody, but if you have questions, come and ask, but definitely the mask wearing has helped, hand washing has helped. You know, I think it's very hard to avoid a viral respiratory illness, but these are the things that show decrease in other usual viral illnesses that we see in the typical seasons. Well, I absolutely agree with that. I think patients with lung disease or immunocompromised states on average are more aware of their vulnerability than most people in the population. In my clinic, just like Dr. Islam's clinic, we try to make a, a point of going over how do you protect yourself. And, you know, there's, there's been a, in, in West Texas and across the country, I guess really around the globe, there's a lot of resistance to masks and fatigue, mask fatigue. But one thing we certainly did see is, as she pointed out, is that we saw a dramatic decrease in flu and respiratory syncytial virus and all these other viral viral bugs that give us fits every fall and winter. You know, of course, I agree that, you know, we would like everyone to be vaccinated and boosted, but that's just not never going to be possible in where we are. But I do try to make sure that we get an opportunity to have an honest conversation about it. And I think one of the things that sometimes is not really looked in as the survivors from COVID because people say, well, you know, 
the chance of dying is 1% or whatever in the population. Well, if, if your loved one dies, it's 100%. Right. But we also see that even patients with really seemingly mild infection present later on with problems with memory and cognitive disorders, lung disorders, heart disease, renal failure, new onset diabetes, all probably in some way attributable to the you know, multi-system effect of COVID, even in mild disease. And I think that understanding that better is something we're going to have to really face in the next few months or years and help patients and their families understand that better. Because again, if it sounds like 1% chance of dying sounds, you know, doesn't sound so frightening, but like I said, every patient that dies in our unit is 100%. And we've had patients in our unit, you know, some of whom were in vulnerable populations, some of them weren't, who were the 8th, ninth, and 10th person in that family to die from COVID. And I think, uh, you know, in that family, it's 1,000%, right? Well, is there anything else you'd like to add? I mean, I just want to say, you know, I always believe that, you know, in darkness or in bad times, there is always good with that. And I think through this experience, I've met some amazing people from other campuses and other, you know, the engineering, the honors department that I never would have met, you know, and just to see the inherent good in people that they came together to help when they couldn't come into the ICU to help us. And so I'm optimistic by nature. And so for me that, you know, there's always sadness everywhere you go, but there's always hope and there's, you know, always faith that things will be better. And, you know, people are there to help if you just kind of ask and, you know, work together. And I think humanity is good. Yeah. So I, I think certainly we, we saw some really good examples here in Lubbock of people pulling together. Certainly the 3D consortium and the school of pharmacy and nursing and everyone in the hospital, we all pulled together. I mean, the critical care unit was where the most acute and intense exposure to this is, but everyone in the hospital yes. had to step up. And therefore, a large portion of this time, we all pulled together. Our individual needs and concerns were subservient to the greater need. And that is hope that we can do that in the future. You, but, you know, we went, we've gone through periods where, you know, very frankly, things have been a little rough. The, you know, the, everybody's tired. They have fatigue from wearing masks, wearing, you know, COVID, vaccination, everything. They're sick of it. They want it to be done. But when things get rough, the community has stepped up to try to support us. And that has helped us get through some pretty dark days where we were just struggling. And I, I, I think that that is the, the most important thing. Well, Dr. Tess and Dr. Islam, thank you so much for coming on our podcast, and we hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Texas Tech Health Check. Make sure to subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts so you won't miss the next episode. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Always seek immediate medical advice from your physician or healthcare provider for questions regarding your health or medical condition. Texas Tech Health Check is brought to you by Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center and produced by Tierra Castillo, Susana Cisneros, and me, Melissa Whitfield. <laughs>